Acts 17, 1 to 15. Here it is. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name, because of your great love for us in Him, because of that, would you open our minds afresh or for the first time to understand your Scriptures this morning? Would you, by your Holy Spirit, make our hearts burn within us as we encounter your Word, Lord? Please help us to love the Bible and to treasure it and to eagerly receive it as what it really is, the very words of God. Amen. Well, as many of you are aware, uh, some maybe a little more joyfully and some not so joyfully, we're right now smack in the middle of the basketball playoffs, the NBA playoffs. And again, maybe... uh, Many of you are no doubt aware, some joyfully and some not so joyfully, that the Miami Heat, I mean, they're doing all right. (laughs) I mean, you know, hey, one more win and they'll make it to the finals, but also one more loss 
And they're out as they head into Game 7 this week versus their opponents, the Indiana Pacers. Now, the reason why I say some joyfully and some not so joyfully are aware of this is because, let's face it, whether you like basketball or not, whether you get my references up here or not, there's hardly any way that we can miss the fact right now in this city that the playoffs are happening and that the Heat are in position to go to the finals. Why? Well, because diehard Heat fans abound all around us, don't they? And between things they say, things they post on Facebook, Twitter, etc., and then also just the media, the newspaper articles and the news programming and the radio shows, we can't help but encounter it. And especially this time of year, our, the Heat fans, some of them may be such big fans. They, you know, they're affected by the results of the games. And they might even say that they bleed Miami Heat basketball. If you were to cut them open, red and black would just stream out of them. <laughs> it's part of their identity, right? I mean, it, it's, it's, it's part of what fuels them. It's what comes out of them. They're excited this time of year. Now, on a far more serious note, now look, as Christians, it's okay to be Heat fans. I want to watch Game 7. I want the Heat to win. However, instead of Miami Heat basketball being our fuel, and red and black being what we bleed, what if we were a people who bled, who were marked by, whose primary identity was found in the Bible and the message it contains? What if, more than anything else, we were fueled by Scripture and God's Word is what came out of us? What if... Just as a car is fueled by gas, and if you were to cut open its fuel line and gasoline is what would leak out, what if we were a people who were fueled by the Bible, and if you were to cut us open, Bibline, if you will, came streaming out. And where I get that is this. Charles Spurgeon one time said this quote of Puritan John Bunyan. He said this, Read anything of his, and you will see that it is almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with Scripture. His writings make us feel and say, why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere. His blood is bibbling. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the Word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. Well, dear church, I believe that God's intention in our lives at all times and what he's reminding us of today in this passage is just what Mr. Spurgeon described, that we would be a people full of the word of God, full of the Bible, that we would be a people, a church who treasure God's words, A church who eagerly receives and examines the scriptures. You see in our passage this morning that we're looking at, Acts 17, we see a similar theme that we've been seeing over and over again in our Acts series. You know, Paul and his team, they're going to a Jewish synagogue in a new city and they're preaching the gospel. And then what happens? A few people believe and then many others get mad, go crazy, and begin persecuting them. So... What is the difference here in this passage 
besides the town? Is it just a new town? Is that the only difference? And then why am I emphasizing the scripture so much already this morning? What appears in this passage that Luke's purpose is to do just that. He gives us these very brief accounts of what Paul actually said. He doesn't uh, give us much of what Paul said. And then he uses that to highlight the use of and the different responses to the gospel-centered scripture in the two towns of Thessalonica and Berea. So I believe that he wants us to see how the church was and is built on scripture, the Bible, okay? And so the main point of my message is this this morning. I'll put it up on the screen for you. Treasure and eagerly receive the scriptures. Treasure and eagerly receive the scriptures. Now look, before I go any farther, I realize that there's a broad spectrum of ways that you can be feeling this morning and ways that you may be receiving what I'm saying so far about the scriptures, ways that you yourselves personally view the Bible and handle it. You know, and just two broad categories. There could be those of you who just really don't believe the Bible for a handful of reasons. Well, friend, there is a message in here for you this morning, if you'll hear it. And it's my prayer that God, the Holy Spirit, would grant you to. But they're the majority of us, right? I mean, we believe the Bible is God's word. That's why we're here. We're here to hear it. And maybe some of you are doing really well with being full of the Bible in your life. But my guess, if you're like me, is that maybe some others of you agree that you should be. Agree that you should bleed this Bibline stuff I'm talking about. But you're, but, but you're not. You know, if someone were to, were to come and to check under the hood of your life, your, your hood, you would have the right fuel. You know, there'd be a little Bibline in the tank, but you're running low. You're looking at your dashboard, you know, and that empty light is just faintly beginning to show up. You know, you know it's kind of time to go and fill up. Maybe whether through your familiarity with the Bible or because of just what's going on in your life right now, you've slowly begun to live more and more on the fumes than on the fullness of the fuel of the Word of God. Friend, my burden for you this morning is that God would fill up your tank with the fuel of Scripture. That He would thrill your soul with the power and beauty of His Word. So friends, wherever you are on that spectrum, between those two poles, I believe that our loving Father is speaking to us this morning, calling us to treasure and eagerly receive His Scriptures. Okay, so let's get into the passage to see it. My first point is this. What are these Scriptures? Verses 1 to 9. Now look, before we go any further, just to let you know, point one is going to be much longer than point two, so don't worry too much if you see me going a little long here. If we truly see this first point, then the second point is going to naturally flow from it, okay? So look with me at verse one. It says this, Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Okay, so kind of getting back into the story here of Acts, the gospel is continuing to advance further and further and further into the Gentile world. The Holy Spirit had guided Paul and his team to the region of Macedonia. 
and the city of Philippi. That was last week and two weeks ago. Now they've made it all the way to Thessalonica. Now this was a big time city. It was a crucial city. It was the chief seaport of Macedonia and was the seat for the Roman governor and the capital of the entire province of Macedonia. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy enter the city and they come to a synagogue of the Jews. And look what happens next. Verses 2 and 3, look with me. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So Paul enters the synagogue, as we've seen him do time and time again in the book of Acts. At some point, presumably, you know, they're like, Hey, Brothers, do you have any encouraging words for us? So he stands up. And he does what we've seen him doing everywhere so far uh, in the book of Acts. Everywhere he goes. But I love how Luke succinctly describes what it is he does here. Look at it. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Explaining and proving from them that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Okay, so we're going to come back to this. But what he does here is is he takes the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, that's what their Bible was back then. They didn't have the New Testament. And explain and prove from it that the expected Messiah that they were waiting for had to suffer and rise from the dead. And then he says, Jesus is that guy. Look at it. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, is the Messiah. And then as a result of his proclamation of the gospel from the scriptures, we see two responses in the rest of this first section. Some believe and the rest literally go crazy. So look at the first response at verse 4. It says, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So some Jews, many God-fearing Greeks, as well as leading women, believe. And they they join together with Paul and Silas. However, after some period of time, the Jews, once again, become jealous. And they seemingly just cast off all restraint and they seek to do them harm. Look at verses 5 through 9 again. Listen to this and imagine this. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So in jealousy and envy, the Jews, I mean, this is a planned out thing. They recruit many lowlifes from the city. They form a mob. They whip the whole city up into an uproar. I mean, can you imagine this happening? And then they actually attack the house of Jason. This resident who presumably had become a believer and was housing Paul. And then not finding Paul and his Friends, they decide to drag Jason. 
and some of the other brothers before the city authorities. And then they proceed to falsely accuse them. Though their accusations come nearer to the truth than they may have intended. And then they eventually let them go after requiring bail. Though they were quite disturbed by it all. Okay, so that there is a very brief sketch of what it is that happened at Thessalonica in this first scene here. And so, taking a step back and looking at what happened here, we see that the center point of all that ended up happening was what Paul did when he walked into that synagogue. Okay? What was it that he did? What did he do? When he was asked to speak, Paul stood up and he opened the Scriptures and reasoned from them and explained and proved from them the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was the foundation for the faith of those who believed as well as the focal point of what led to the eventual rioting by the Jews. And so to the return to my question that I have on this first point, what are these scriptures? Why did Paul appeal to them? What was it about them and the message Paul proclaimed from them? And then further, what are they to us? Including uh, now, not just the Old Testament, but also the New. What is this book? The Bible. What is this book? In other words, what are the Scriptures? Well, friends, to answer this question, I want to paint a picture for you this morning. It's multi-layered. It's a tapestry. It's a masterpiece. And I want to take you by the arm as much as I can and point and say, look at what this is. And by God's grace, to somehow sufficiently communicate this to you. I am grasping here, okay? I'm grasping. I'm struggling to find ways to adequately describe this to you. So God, please help. So what are these scriptures? Well, look in verses 2 and 3. Paul uses the scriptures to prove what? That Jesus is the Christ. And so the first and primary brushstroke on this painting that I want to show you this morning is that the scriptures are Christ-centered. The scriptures are Christ-centered. Centered. Now listen, the Bible, friends, the Bible is a glorious book. It's a collection of 66 different books, listen to this, by 40, 40 different authors written in three different languages on three different continents over the course of approximately 1,600 years. Let that sink in. This book that you hold in your hands and have on your phones right now It's just this amazing, this ancient document. And it isn't just a nice collection of all these different books bound together yet unrelated, but each book is actually a chapter in a grand story that God is telling us in His one book, the Bible. It's one story by one author. And so its message is unified. And it's one overarching and main point is this, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, God Himself, 
who became a human being, died in our place for our sins, and rose again from the dead to eventually bring his people home to God himself, the Father. Friends, the Bible is Christ-centered. Its purpose is that in everything, Christ would be preeminent, which is exactly why Paul does what he does here in this passage. He proves to them from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now, if you've ever read the Old Testament, you may be wondering, how in the world does he do that? I mean, I don't read too many things about Jesus in the Old Testament. His name's never really mentioned there. Well, you could look back through some of the speeches in the book of Acts that we've already looked at and and look at some of the scriptures they cited. But I'll give you just one this morning. It's from Isaiah 53. And now this whole chapter in Isaiah 53 is amazing. But I'll give you just one sampling from just one verse, verse 10. Look at it with me on the screen. It says this. Yet, he's talking about this righteous servant who would come. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So look, here in this one verse, we see how the righteous servant would die. It says it was the will of the Lord to crush him as an offering. But then we also get a hint at his resurrection. It says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Well, how, how will he see his offspring if he was put to death? By rising from the dead and living again. So friends, this is just one of many places that very explicitly show how the promised Messiah would have to suffer Die and rise. And of course, we know that only one person has ever done what the scriptures prophesied Jesus Christ. And so, without disregarding what is actually said in each passage, everything that you read in the Bible is in some way either looking forward to Jesus and his life and his work. It's either actually portraying Jesus and his life and his work, or it's either looking back at Jesus and his life and his work and explaining and applying it and talking about him coming again. And so the first and primary brushstroke of this question, what are these scriptures, is this. They are christ centered scriptures and so friend i have a question for you on this are you reading the scriptures in this way is jesus the main point for you when you meet with god in the scriptures may god grant it to be so for you okay so what else what are these scriptures well later in verse 13 in our passage that we're going to get to They are referred to this way, the Word of God. Now really, this isn't just a brushstroke on the painting. It's indeed the very canvas that all the other brushstrokes are painted on too. And it's this. I'll put it on the screen for you. The Scriptures are the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. 
the Scriptures are the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. Now this point answers the question of how in the world such a diverse grouping of books written by so many different people in different languages at different times could somehow present a unified story and a main theme. How could it do that? It's because behind all the human authors was the one divine author. And the primary person of the Trinity involved in the writing of the scriptures was God the Holy Spirit. Read with me. Um, 2 Peter 1 to 21. I don't know, uh, it's on the screen there, okay. 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21, it says this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible This book is Holy Spirit-inspired. It's God's words, God's words through human authors. It's unlike any other book on the face of the planet. This is no normal book. There's no other book like it. It is like other books insofar as it, you know, it looks like a normal book. It's got a cover, it's got pages, it's got words and ink. But that's where the similarities end. The scriptures are Holy Spirit inspired. They are God's words. Oh, how precious is the Bible that you're holding in your hands right now and looking at on your phones, friends. And so the scriptures are Christ-centered and they're Holy Spirit inspired. They're the words of God Himself. And so, friend, Church, do you reverence the Bible and esteem it as God's very words? That is what they are. God is calling us to read them that way. And so the rest of the brushstrokes of this painting that I want to paint for you, they all flow down from these first two. So look again at verses 2 and 3 in Acts 17, if you're still there. Paul roots his gospel presentation about Jesus in Scripture. He roots it in Scripture. And then later in verses 11 and 12, the Bereans look to Scripture to verify Paul's message. Why? It's because of this. Scripture was their authority. And so... The third point is the scriptures are authoritative. If the Bible is God's word, that the Holy Spirit inspired, then it carries with it an authority that is unmatched in this world. Whatever God has said in the Bible is authoritative. What God says goes. And you can bet He will have the final word. So because of this, Those who ultimately disobey His Word, listen carefully, particularly His Word of the Gospel, will be punished in the end. But the authority of the Bible also has a positive side. Because it is absolutely true and authoritative. We can stake our lives on it. We can 
hold to it as a sure anchor in the midst of a world of confusion and uncertainty. We can know that what it says will happen will in fact come to pass no matter how much the world and Satan want to rail against it and cast their seeds of doubt. So look, when you turn on the TV and you see the latest breaking news reports about the Bible, disproving parts of it, saying, oh, well, you know, we now know that Jesus had a wife or that he never really existed or that we found his body or that Adam never really existed, etc., etc., etc. Or when you hear some friend or coworker arguing how our culture is just different today than that of Bible times and how some things just aren't re- relevant anymore. Know this for certain. The scriptures are absolutely true and authoritative. And listen to this, they will be proven to be so in the long run. Friends, we want to be on the, if we want to be on the right side of history, be on the side of the scriptures. And so, church, the question for us is, is scripture our ultimate authority? Friends, nothing else, nothing else, nothing else is worthy of your trust like it is. The scriptures are authoritative. Now, another thing we see in this tapestry, in verse 4 in our text, after Paul had explained and proven the scripture, from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, many were persuaded and believed. Now, what this meant was that they were able to understand what it said. It was clear. And further, all different types of people believe, Jews, Greeks, men, and women. And so the other brushstroke is this. The scriptures are clear, and they're for everyone. Everyone. Listen, since God authored the Bible for his people to know him by, he did it in such a way so that any and all people that he would call to himself could understand and believe it. Friend, God wrote the Bible for you to know Him and to walk with Him. He used human words and speaks in a way that anyone can understand Him. You don't need a PhD or have to be some big reader of books to understand the essentials of the Bible. And men, I have a particular burden for you on this point. Women can be susceptible to this too, but men, I want to talk to you. It seems to me that women are more often than not the ones who read their Bibles more. Many of us guys, you know, we may just not consider ourselves into reading that much. Just not big readers. May I just challenge you men. And can I challenge that way of thinking when it comes to the Bible? This book... This Bible, it wasn't written by some sophisticated human author. It's not like all those other books. It was written by God, your loving Father, who wants you to know Him. Friends, the Scriptures are clear. And they're for all of us. They're for you. They're for your children. They're for the high. They're for the low. They're for the dumb. They're for the smart. They're for the rich. They're for the poor. The scriptures are clear. And they're for all of us, brothers and sisters. 
Do you know, friends, dear church, that God loves you? He loves you. And He has given this book for you as a gift and made it so you can understand it. He has, church. He has. And so continuing to look at these different brushstrokes, the last thing I want to point out is how necessary and powerful the Bible is. Without the Old Testament Scriptures in our passage, the people who we see believing, they wouldn't have had much to base their faith on, would they? And without both the Old and the New Testaments, you and I wouldn't know about God or Jesus Christ. We wouldn't even be here right now. And so the final brushstroke that I want to mention is this. The scriptures are necessary and powerful. Friends, we are utterly dependent on the Bible for all points of our faith. Listen, I don't think this is overstated. No Bible, no salvation. The scriptures, empowered by the Holy Spirit, have power to save. They have power to sustain and guide and strengthen us every step of the way. Oh, friends, the Bible, the Bible is the most precious and powerful and unique book that has ever existed, and we are utterly dependent on it. How amazingly gracious of God to give us this book. Church, do you recognize your great need for and dependence on the Bible? Now, to give you an illustration of this, I want to share a story. Uh, Many of you know that my wife and I spent two years uh, serving as missionaries in Italy, uh, the years before we came here to Miami in Palm Vista. And we were there to share the gospel with Italian students, plain and simple. Now, the first year we were there, we would engage with students. We would talk to them about their spiritual lives, and we would just have spiritual conversations with them and talk to them about God. Now, all these things were great things, but the central element was missing. The second we recognized it, the the, the second year we were there, we recognized this, and we began to intentionally study the Bible trying to memorize and remember where different verses were in the scriptures. So that when we were having a conversation with someone about God and a certain topic came up, instead of just trying to merely describe to them in our own words and trying to recollect what it was we thought the Bible said, we were able to actually open our Bibles at that moment. You know, that reminds me of this verse. We'd open it up and we'd read it together with them. And our conversations would be rooted in the truth of God. And we'd be able to evangelize them out of the Bible. And you know what? We saw it working powerfully. Church, what what others need most, what we need most is the Bible. This is no ordinary book, friends. I mean, what other book... What other book? This is weird to talk about a book having supernatural power. What other book has supernatural power? None. What other book is absolutely necessary for our salvation and life with God? None. 
What other book can be understood by young children and at the same time give scholars depths to too deep to plumb? None. What other book carries with it an absolute authority that you can stake your very life on? What other book will never be proven false or never have to go back and be edited or changed? None. What other book has God as its author and gives to the world the Christ-centered message that alone can bring salvation and everlasting life? None. This very book that you hold in your hands today and have on your phones, that's what that is. Friends, we're so spoiled here in the United States. Most of us probably have easier access to and more Bibles than we know what to do with. There are people in other countries right now who would do anything to have this book in their hands and in their own language. I just invite you to look down at your Bibles right now and just ponder this amazing thought. Oh my goodness. How amazingly loving of God to give us His book. I pray that He would grant you, He would grant me to see it that way. And so friends, having quickly looked It's some of what it is that makes up this masterful tapestry. There could be more and more to say. What are these scriptures? And seeing the answer to that question, the question for us now is, well, what do we do with them? If they are so valuable, how do we treasure them? And how should it function in our lives? Which is our second point this morning. Point two, how do we treasure and eagerly receive them in our lives as the church? Let's look again at verses 10 to 12 in our passage. Paul and company are shuttled out of town. And then they head for Berea. And then upon entering the city, what is it that they do? Well, they keep preaching the gospel again and again, even in the midst of persecution. And so now we've seen him doing this over and over, right? We've seen some believe and then get persecuted. And then um, we've seen some believe and then we've seen others persecute them. Uh, just like we just saw in Thessalonica. But friends, here in this scene, we see something quite different, don't we? Something new. We have not seen this. The Bereans don't respond that way. In fact, as a whole, they're able to be described this way. Look, as more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? What made them more noble than the others? Well, here's what it was. Look with me at verse 11. It says this, They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What an amazing description. I mean, the Holy Spirit had so worked in this group that Luke is able to describe them as a whole as hearing Paul's message of the gospel with an eagerness to hear from God. And so after hearing the message from Paul, they go home and day by day they're examining the scriptures, seeing, is what he said true? Is that so? And then look what it says happens in verse 12. I love this. Many of them therefore believed. 
with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. You see, when the Holy Spirit is at work, the natural conclusion and consequence of studying the Bible, even the Old Testament, is that one will believe in Jesus as Messiah, Lord, and Savior. And so taking a step back again, okay, and looking at how these Bereans responded to the gospel and looked to Scripture, let's consider how that should inform how we should respond as well. Now, I think this is part of Luke's point here. And he presents this as a pattern that should characterize us all in how we approach the Bible. Okay, so look, let's think. What is it that they do? Well, first, they're eager to hear from God. They're eager to hear from God. They eagerly receive Paul's message of the gospel from Scripture. And then secondly, they measure everything they heard against Scripture. The question is why? Because they treasured Scripture. They loved God. They loved His Word. It was their authority. They were awaiting a Messiah as it had promised, and they believed that what Paul was saying about Jesus was true. And so the question for us is, how can we treasure Scripture like the Bereans? How can we eagerly receive it like they did? Well, first, let's talk about it on a church-wide level, okay? As a church, this is why we do what we do. This is why our Sunday services look like they do. This is why I'm preaching right now. From the Bible. This is why we're willing to sit here and endure a hot auditorium where the AC isn't working. And um, it's, it's because God has spoken. And this is what we need more than anything else. This is why we do what we do in community groups. Meeting and praying and having conversations around the Word of God, seeking to figure out How can we live this out? This is why we do what we do in our reclaimed singles ministry, our catalyst youth ministry, our children's ministry, and on and on and on. We desperately want to be a church built on the Word of God, built on the Bible. It's why we do what we do, friends. We are trying to build around and upon God's Word. And so my question to you And to me, is this, are you eager to receive God's word in God's church? Are you eager to hear it, eager to learn from it, eager to talk about it, eager to pray over it with other believers and members of our church? And if not, why not? Have have different gatherings or meetings that you're a part of begin to lose their luster for you? Have you become more aware of what's missing than what's there? You see, when we see God's word as central and as powerful, all the other imperfections of our meetings, and you can count on this, there will be imperfections. We'll take a back seat. Friends, when we're eager to hear God's word together, as his people, we're going to be around. We're going to be available. We're going to be making time for one another and our meetings together. We're going to be on time. We're going to be leaning forward, engaging, paying attention, 
Why? Because we're needy. We need to hear from God. We need to hear about Jesus Christ. We're desperate to hear. We'll be be leaving our meetings together, going home, opening the Scriptures to see, is what He said accurate? Man, I don't want you to sit here and just take what I'm saying wholesale. I want you to be sitting here, listening to me talking, looking at the Bible. Okay, he said that. Okay, is that there? Okay, okay. Uh, uh, I don't know about that one. Um, Okay, what is he saying? What has the Bible said? If it's true, I'll hold fast to it. And we want to go home and we want to talk to our kids about it and share what we've learned. Not putting ourselves over the Bible as some judge, as many of the Thessalonians did, but under its authority, as the Bereans did. And so then secondly, let's talk about what it looks like to treasure God's word and eagerly receive it on an individual level in our lives. Well, first, it simply looks like us making the time to get into the Bible and read it. Nothing too complex here. But... But if you are like me, I am so tempted to make my personal Bible reading something that I do once I make sure that everything else is done. You know, make sure I got enough sleep, make sure I've taken care of everything else, make sure I've done this and that, make sure to check, you know, email, social media one last time before I'll finally get into God's Word. Brothers and sisters, this should not be Because of the preciousness of this book and our desperate need for it, it should be the top priority that we read it and pray over it day and night. But because of this very fact, the spiritual forces of evil and our flesh fight us the hardest on this very point, tempting us to do any and everything except for opening and reading and believing the Bible because they know that's where the power is. Friends, the verse that I read to you at the beginning from Hebrews 2, it refers to this idea of drifting away from the message of salvation and it couldn't be more true. It's as if we're in a river flowing downstream. The current is strong, but it's not impossible to overcome. Now, to swim upstream is to put forth much effort, but to move downstream away from the fountainhead is easy. You don't have to swim in that direction. All you have to do is float. As long as you aren't swimming against the current, you will be carried along by the current. And so this is where, if we're not actively fighting to read the Bible, then though we may not be running away from God, We may not be running away from the Bible on purpose. You can bet that slowly but surely we are drifting away from it. Friends, God is calling us to be a people who swim against the current of this world that would seek to overtake us and to fight to get into this word. And it's amazing the effect that this has on you over time. Look, some of you know that my family and I recently moved. And so just with moving, it's been a pretty packed couple of weeks moving with young children. And sadly, I confess to you that I have not spent nearly as much time reading the Bible as I wanted to. I have not been running away from the Bible. But I also haven't been fighting to read it. 
And so after a few hectic weeks, I look up and guess what? I'm much further downstream than I thought I would be. I wasn't running from God, but because I wasn't fighting, I was floating away. Now let me give you an example just from yesterday of how God granted me help to fight back against the current and get into his word and how he met me there. I just told you that we moved, right? And so the last few weeks have been tough. And our girls, they've had trouble sleeping like never before. And to further complicate matters, the AC in our house, our new house, quit working. And my wife's van was having trouble. And so I was on my way to get the van to our mechanic and noticed it rapidly overheating. You know, that needle's heading towards the H pretty fast. And so I had to pull over and wait as Corey graciously was going to come and bring me uh, some engine coolant and then head to the mechanic with me. Well, I ended up sitting outside of uh, the Miramar Town Center for quite a while. And as I sat down, I thought about, well, what should I do right now? And I had my iPad and my iPhone with me, fully charged. And so first thing pops in my mind, the internet and social media apps. They're just calling my name. Check me, check me. (laughs) Internet, Facebook, email, Twitter, Instagram, blogs. Look this up, look that up. Then... I was a little nervous about my prep on this sermon. So I thought, you know, maybe I'll work on it. But something was still off. With all that was going on this week, my soul was just feeling in turmoil within me. It needed rest. It needed peace. It needed power. And so then I remembered the message of my sermon. (laughs) Open the Bible, Bentley. And so I put everything else aside, I open the Bible on my iPhone, and I begin reading in the next section of my Bible reading plan. And you know what? It happened to be John 13. John 13, where Jesus is sitting down for his last meal with his disciples, and it said this in the very first verse. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved those who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Church, I was overwhelmed in that moment as the Holy Spirit made those words come alive to me. The love of Jesus Christ for me was made real afresh in my mind and heart. I was strengthened by the Holy Spirit in that moment. I was calmed during the midst of a crazy week. Grace and power were imparted to me by the Spirit as I read God's Word. Friends, I believe that that is what God wants to do in you and in me every single day. To strengthen us, to remind us of the gospel, to give us hope, to make us love. And the way that it happens is primarily through the Holy Spirit working powerfully within us as we read His words in the Bible. And so church... I plead with you. I plead with myself. Don't make Bible reading a fair weather thing. Don't wait until the time is just right and everything else is done. Make this a priority, the priority. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all other things will be added to you. Well, friends,
I'm going to end here. But there's multiple resources that can help you with this. You can find Bible reading plans. You can read a book called One-to-One Bible Reading that teaches us how to have community over the Bible. You can download an app on your phone or go to a website called Fighter Verses and learn how to memorize Scripture and figure out where it is so that you can bring it to mind or share it with a friend. Come talk to Al, Corey, or me if you, if you want any pointers to that or any help here. We'd love to help you. Church, God is calling us to be a people who treasure and eagerly receive the Scriptures. To be like the Bereans who eagerly examine the Scripture. To be like the small group of believers in Thessalonica who did believe even in the midst of much persecution, so that Paul was able to later say this about them. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And uh, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Friends, God is calling us to be a church built on the Bible. He wants us to see them for how unique and valuable and powerful they are and to build our lives on them. He wants us to evaluate everything through them and become more and more acquainted with them for all of our thinking and being to be colored by them. And so to end, listen to this last word from Charles Spurgeon that goes with the one I read to you earlier. This is our exhortation from him. Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the word of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it until we have taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or the historic facts, but it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scriptural models. And what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. Amen. Let me pray for us, church, as the worship team comes back up. Oh, Father, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name that you would, by your Spirit, Lord, we're powerless without it, by your Spirit, quicken these truths to our hearts. Lord, the current of this world, our sin, and the spiritual forces of evil are flowing headlong against you and your purposes. So would you grant us power to fight and to pay much closer attention to what we've heard, to not drift away from it, but instead to be increasingly characterized by it. May we eat right into the heart of the Bible, Lord, your heart, and have all our thinking, saying, and believing defined and characterized by it. Oh God. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who makes all of these things possible. In your name we pray, amen.